The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is a joy to be with you today as we welcome Anu George Kanjanathopal. Anu is the executive director of IJM Canada, and this podcast, in case you don't know, is presented by IJM, International Justice Mission, and every once in a while, we turn the mic on ourselves because there is just uh, there are just a lot of people that you need to know at IJM, and Anu is certainly one of those people. Anu joined IJM in 2011 as the director of legal in the Chennai office, and in 2012, Anu led IJM's Google-funded project to equip NGOs across India to rescue and rehabilitate bonded labor victims using IJM's casework model. Her pioneering courage and innovation to build this project really from scratch resulted in the rescue of 4,000 people in just three years. It's un- unreal. Anu moved to the Delhi office in 2014 and led the Bonded Labor Casework Partnership, which led work across India. Currently, Anu and her husband and her twin daughters live in London, Ontario. I'm not going to say much more about her story and her bio because she's going to share a lot of it in the interview, but I will tell you that the conversation that you are about to hear is like nothing you have ever heard. I thought I knew Anu's story, but even I was shocked and really inspired both by the details of her story, but also by the heroism and by the hope. As a note, there are going to be details in this conversation uh, that talk pretty specifically about abuse. And so if that is a particular trigger for you, I totally understand if you join us for our next episode. That being said, I am so honored to introduce you to my friend and a person I look up to a great deal, Anu George Kanjanathopal. It's hard to know where to start with you because you and I have known each other for years. I have been trying to, we've been trying to do this interview for many years when we first met and I have heard so much of your story and your life, but I was wondering if you could just start by introducing yourself to, to the audience today. Absolutely. I'm so grateful uh, to have this opportunity, Eddie, because I've heard so much about the podcast, but never really had the opportunity to share the space with you. So I'm glad that I get to do this today. My name is Anu George Kanjanathopal, and uh, I'm the executive director of uh, IGM Canada. I live in the greater Toronto area with my husband, Sachin, and twin daughters. But that definitely doesn't sum up who I am. <laughs> I've, uh, I come from uh, South Asia. I came, I come from, born in Kerala, brought up in Chennai studied, lived, and worked in different places around the world. But I think the turning point in my life, so to say, um, was introduced to me by my interest in theater and its ability to transform my world and the world uh, outside of me. So I, I think if there is one way to define me, there isn't one word, but one word that I'd love to define me is that of a street theater performer. 
but an identity that I don't own anymore because um, because I was uh, attacked while performing street theater uh, and drawing children who were oppressed um, and children who did not have access to education when I was getting them excited about education, about freedom. Um, you know, all those things that we all aspire to. I was attacked. And ever since, I've never turned back to that life. But yeah, I've been a little all over. <laughs> no, no, not all over. That is, I never know how to answer this question and end up just saying the most boring answer in the world whenever somebody asks me to introduce myself. But I mean, you've just given us a peek into a, just a real big story. Can I rewind a little bit through it and ask you a couple of questions? Go ahead, Eddie. So what was it like? You said you grew up, most of your formative years were in Chennai. Mm -hmm. So for those that have never been to Chennai or maybe never been to India and have only seen India like on movies and, you know, on the news, can you paint a picture of your of your Chennai, what it's like there for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, Chennai is nestled in the southern tip of the Indian Peninsula. So if you look at the map, um, right beside the sea is where I'm hanging out. And that's that's my home. And I love the sea. That is my, and I grew up and studied quite close to the sea. Uh, I went to law college. Five years was beside that. So every single morning and evening, uh, you would find me there. That is Chennai. Chennai is bustling with activity. It is also an IT hub of sorts. You would find people from all over the country come to Chennai to work. So there is a technology up there. But it's also a city that is a melting pot of all cultures. So if I walk out of my door in the morning, uh, the kind of smells that would capture my mind would be jasmine, um, turmeric, um, and that of sindoor. It is something that women adorn their forehead with. It's part of our culture uh, to indicate that we are a married uh, woman. It's just, it's just a variety of smells of spices and flowers and you know things that will transport you to another world altogether. Is that an okay picture, Eddie? That's a beautiful picture. So the women adorn there you adorn themselves with this can you say the word again what was the sindoor you put that it's it's vermilion color you put that right on top of your forehead it's an indication that you're taken so to say <laughs> quite patriarchal but it's, it's quite beautiful yeah. <laughs> and it's cultural right but as a woman in canada now are you wear do you wear that no i wear a bindi i wear a bindi to indicate my culture as an indian Got uh, it. yeah uh, I, I don't wear a sindoor. Got it. And so you said you studied law? I studied law, yes. What brought you to studying law and and why study that? Because it's an intense field of study. Um, I don't know. I think when I was um, eight or nine was when I first saw um, a domestic worker from my neighborhood getting beaten up by her husband right in the middle of the road. And and because I grew up in an environment where there was so much of love, sharing, and you know, my parents were probably the most in love people I've ever seen. To me, this was a strange sight. And I, I kept asking my father, why nobody is doing anything about it? Uh, and I said, go, go and stop them. But what happens is that this is so much a part of um, you know, our culture there, that even if you go to question, the woman would stop and say, no, he's my husband. He can do whatever he wants to. Uh, that, is the, that is the deepest depth to which 
you know, violence is tolerated, accepted, and mm-hmm. even very much part of the custom of how people exist. And I was like, this is wrong. And then a few years later, we had a water problem in the area, which basically meant that, uh, you know, people in our households have to uh, run to a water tanker. Literally imagine a big truck filled with water and you go with pots, lots of pots and collect as much as you need every day. There is a slot between 5.30 in the evening to 6.30 in the evening where there are 25 houses in that road and every single household will come, stand in a line and get this water. I, I realized that this was not cool because there were some areas where people were getting water directly, it was delivered directly into a water storage unit, which we didn't have. So I think I was all of 13, I walked to the nearest municipal office and said, hey, you know what? We are entitled to get this. I had no idea we were. And and he was like, well, well, then you can send me a formal complaint. I mean, I was what, 12, 13? I went and purchased a Barat on the laws that talks about how water should be distributed by the local government. And I wrote a letter and I used all of these sections and I gave it to him. After that, I think everyone in my locality used to call me as lawyer punna, which means the lawyer girl. So I think it was a given that I would only be drawn to that because, you know, people decided what my career was. But then once I got in, I knew that it was home. That is exactly what I needed to be empowered in. Wow. So you were just always a lawyer. Like this was this was a realization of who you were naturally. Was, I was just it, always a nuisance. Uh, but yes, <laughs> that too. No. <laughs> so then how can you draw the line between you, you study law? Do you ever practice law in the traditional sense or do you go straight into the theater after that? I started theater when I was 13, actually. I started theater because I was not a lawyer then, but then I had so much to say and I loved, loved, loved the stage. And note that I'm saying this in past tense. So because I didn't have enough money for that, I started my business when I was about 15 in event management so that I could kind of, you know, explore this street theater space uh, and not, uh, you know, force people to do it without any investment in that. So, yes, theater was basically the start of, you know, why I also naturally got into law. That is probably the only space where you could perform and get paid for it. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of drama in the court, definitely, um, you know, in the Indian courtrooms. But uh, in the technical sense, no, I have not fought cases from start to finish. I've had the opportunity to represent a few crucial cases, um, very personal to me, um, involving uh, adoption for a child who uh, I ended up caring for. She was uh, born. She was born to a ten-year-old who was raped by her stepfather, and basically, I ended up having that child um, for a couple of months. and And the laws were crazy, and that was the first time I walked into the courtroom to basically demand for justice for this girl because I wanted to make sure that she had a home where she could be adopted into. So that was. I think my first real case where I won and, and practiced and used this law. The other times was, um, you know, representing IGM um, for, you know, the trafficking cases that I had the responsibility to lead, close to 300 plus cases when I was working out of Chennai office. Yeah. Okay. So how did you come in contact with this, with the girl that had been abused that then you had ended up being a part of the adoption of that child? How did your life intersect with her? Like I told you, I mean, street theater takes you to very interesting places. And I 
was supporting this child. Um, and I had no idea. I mean, she was born in a home where her mother had HIV and her father obviously was not there. And, you know, she had married again. And so I was just supporting this child's education. She was 10 at that point. And then, and then her mother reached out to me and said that she was raped and she's pregnant. And I was like, okay, so make sure that we are able to, you know, give her all the care that she needs um, to bring for that child to bring another child into this world. And we did that. I supported her. But after the baby was born, barely about a month old, the grandmother just took a train, came to Chennai and said, the baby is yours now. I, I don't want my daughter to hold on to this baby and destroy her life. I was like, all right, okay. Hold on. How old are you at this point? Um, I was 23, I think. Yeah. Lord, Hanu, I did not know any of this. Okay, so then this baby is handed to you, and you're now... <laughs> and I went home that evening with a baby. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at it. It's just the craziest... I mean, this is unbelievable. Okay, so you go home, and then what, what happens then? My mother, she's an incredibly strong woman. She just stood there shell-shocked. She was like, what? What, I mean, where is this baby coming from? What do we tell the neighbors? It's like, well, we are caring for her till I can find suitable parents. I need to interview quite a few and see if I can legally hand over this baby to, you know, parents. And uh, she was saying, all right, okay, so let's assign duties and responsibilities for each one in the house. My grandmother was there, my father was there, but but my parents, they're, they're amazing. I mean, they other kind of parents who would step in and say, okay, what you're doing is difficult, hard, sometimes even life-threatening, but we will stand with you. And that's why they didn't bat an eyelid when I decided to work with International Justice Mission. It's, it's, it's a risky job, but they were with me. Yeah, so the baby came home. <laughs> wow, Anu. So I got to ask because you brought it up, but I also understand if you don't want to answer. So forgive me if this isn't sensitive, but you had mentioned in your introduction to yourself that part of street, when you were doing theater and and then street theater, that there was an attack. Is there anything that you are comfortable sharing about that? Or would you rather just let that sit where it is? Oh, I'm absolutely comfortable telling you all about this only because you cannot see my face. So <laughs> mm, <laughs> here mm. you go. Well, street theater started, I told you, I mean, it was more of a passion. 13 years went on even when I was studying uh, to be a lawyer, I continued to have this business on the side, which was event management, really successful. Moved from there to another city uh, because I was like, well, I shouldn't be comfortable in my own space. I mean, I knew everyone uh, in Chennai. I mean, every, every nook and cranny, there was a friend. Uh, there were so many things that I could do. I was like, no, I need to go to a place that's uncomfortable and new and see what it is that I can do with my life. So I went to Bangalore uh, with the hopes of pursuing a master's in business and also doing something that I have not done before, you know, which is work for someone else. And I did that. It was in the course of that. Um, I mean, I was heading the University of Aberdeen, uh, set up the law school in Bangalore, and then was also leading the marketing for another Australian MBA program and teaching in multiple universities on you know, supply chain and uh, even management and all sorts of fun things. You know, life was great. I was also doing theater. But I had a personal encounter with violence then, which basically led me to run away from that city to another city. 
So this is um, this is where I'm not going to go too much into the details. But I went to another city, uh, and there I I took up a job just to make sure that I'm able to pay my bills. And in the mornings and the evenings, I would go to the local park and see, you know, just just what it is that I can do there. And I came across a few children who were working, you know, as aides or helpers to the roadside stands, vendors who sell, you know, buns and, you know, stuffed cutlet of sorts, call that vada pav in Hindi. And I was asking, I was wondering why these kids were not in school. I mean, this is where my arrogance kicks in, right? I mean, I'm a lawyer, uh, almost an MBA graduate, and I've had years of experience doing all this. So I'm thinking, I can do this again in a new city. And I'm telling those kids, hey, come, you know, I'm doing some fun game session, come join. It's like, no, 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 our master won't let us. I say, just come, it's just going to be 15 minutes. So slowly that 15 minutes turned half an hour, half an hour turned one hour. And started with three kids, it eventually became 60 kids. And I spoke to the nearby school to try and find out if I could get them in school. But in the one of the evenings, I had the local police come and tell me, hey, you cannot be doing this. You know, you're using public space for uh, you're, you're kind of being a miscreant. You're, you're not being helped. I say, hey, you know what? I'm a lawyer. Give it to me in writing and uh, I'll see what it is that I can do and cannot do. Arrogant again and supremely stupid. I really hate to interrupt, but, but I'm so sorry. But why, why is that arrogant and stupid? Because to me, it sounds like brave and smart. Can you tell me the distinction there of why? Yeah, it's reasonable for you to think that is brave and smart. I mean, I said arrogant and stupid because, you know, we are dealing with two different worlds of understanding what is safe and secure and what can be done in your world versus mine. In my world, uh, that is very arrogant. In my world, that is very stupid because in most cases, you're not going to be able to get away by challenging anyone in authority, even if you're 100% on the right. Does that does that make sense? It fully makes sense. Thanks yeah. for the clarification. So... Uh, here I am, and then very tall men, like really tall men, came, um, six or seven of them. <laughs> that that bit of memory is a bit blurry, uh, and asked me the same question that the local enforcement asked me. I said, well, if you have a problem with what I'm doing, I mean, as soon as the, these children saw the, these, you know, larger-than-life human beings, they came running and tried to hide behind me. They were so scared that their masters is, I mean, are going to take them up. Some ran. There was so much chaos at that point. And uh, evening, almost broad daylight, um, these guys said, are you going to stop what you're doing? I said, well, you can go tell the cops. And if you think this is wrong, I can get arrested. You know, second time I'm doing something absolutely stupid. Alone, I don't have anyone else there. Then the next couple of minutes is a bit of a blur, but I can tell you this much. I was beaten up to the point where, oh, you should know, I used to be a national marathon runner. And at that point, the thing that came to my rescue was the capacity to run so much more faster than those men, but terribly beaten. I mean, I made it to the YWCA um, in one piece, but absolutely battered. And this was happening for the second time in my life. Um, yeah, with that, I think I needed almost a year to recover, mostly because of the first attack that I experienced in Bangalore. Um, um, you know, because on a deeper level, um, on a psychological level, I was broken. And it took me almost a year to recover from the paralysis on the left side to be able to function. So I had to relearn English. I had to relearn my mother tongue. I had to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, you know, I mean, maybe women who are listening to this can relate. 
it is hard being immobile as a woman. It is harder if you're coming from a society which is very different from the one that you're in right now. Um, so it is a very uncomfortable year of recovery. But it is when I was lying there, did one thing hit me with absolute clarity. And that was, I thought for the longest time that the way that I could address poverty was by educating these kids be it near the small slum area near my school when I first started street theater, be it, you know, in a park in Mumbai, um, where, I, <laughs> where I realized that if I was going to be violated before I can reach out and support anyone, then the bigger problem is violence and not education. Violence needs to end, to end poverty. Thanks for sharing all of that. I'm struck by the fact that it took you a year for a year, you weren't able to speak. I mean, is that, am I understanding that correctly? Um, yeah. I mean, if, if you count uh, an awkward looking face with saliva dripping off your left and trying to make sense of words, which make sense in my head, but doesn't to people who are listening, uh, if that counts for conversation, maybe that recovery period might have been um, briefer, but no, it wasn't. And it still is there, Eddie. I mean, you can never fully get out of that space of having been violated. Whether it's somebody you know deeply or it's an absolute stranger, they both hold the same kind of depth to your psyche. So in that year, when you're unable to fully communicate or really, I mean, do do much of anything, your mind is still active and functioning, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're sitting there and you're you're there just having these just kind of visions about what the future will look like. Did you know how you would do that? Did you understand that violence, like in this moment of understanding, okay, violence is what you need to, to work to combat. Did you know how you were going to go about doing that? Oh my gosh. I had a million ideas, Eddie. I think that is a gift, not just for me. But I mean, I was forced to be on that bed. I was forced to uh, I had no, there was no other place I could go. It was just that spot. So when you're sitting quietly, try this even after this conversation, even if it's for a minute, if you're able to get absolute silence, there are so many amazing things that will run through your head. And that's what happened to me for that year. There were bazillion ideas, which I immediately forgot, by the way, which kept coming. It's like, this is something I can do. And I kept saying, God, just one day. There are so many things that I want to fix. Just one day, <laughs> never. Um, but yeah, there were so many things that were running on my mind. I wanted to use my um, theater skills. I wanted to use my writing skills. I wanted to use my my skills in playing the violin. There were so many ideas. I wanted to do stand-up comedy and talk about, you know, the um, you know broken justice system. I wanted to talk about education. I wanted to write plays for children, you know. Yeah. Find a, yeah, but... No, none of that materialized because by the time I woke up <laughs> or was able to stand and start walking, um, it was about day-to-day -day existence and trying to get through the day and use my very limited memory to serve a very unlimited cause. So what is the path then from there? As you begin to come back to, I mean, come back to life, right? Like what, what is the path? What, what do you do? I uh, was invited. I mean, this this is how there was a twist, a turning point in my life. I was invited by the Jean Sauvé Foundation. Um, somebody had nominated the project that I'd done with children. And 
they loved it. They called me. I came to Canada um, 10 years ago for the first time. And I told them, you know, I'm, I cannot speak. I'm speaking very slowly at that point. I cannot speak. I've just started learning English again. So they were like, that's okay. It's on the basis of what you've done in the past. Please do come. McGill University wants to host you. Concordia University wants to host you. So I spent a year figuring out what I wanted to do and basically audited classes, taught a few classes. And there was nobody to judge me or, you know, have a comparison of how I used to speak in the past versus how I was not speaking in the present. But it is at that point I came across um, IJM and IJM's work. Boy, it was exactly aligned with what I was experiencing or experienced and what I was going through at that point. And I applied for almost a year and a half. Uh, IJM made me wait because obviously I'm not, I was not a great candidate then. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to get a job with IJM though. In fact, <laughs> it doesn't take forever. Yeah. Well, then I quit every other opportunity I had. I was a VP with another organization. I, I took a flight back home and I said, begged, please give me an interview. Got it. And I joined as the director of um, legal and there's been no turning back, I think. I'm convinced this is my last stop because I completely believe in the theory of change. I cannot be as aligned. <laughs> How long have you been with IJM now? Where are we in the time? Almost a decade. Almost a decade. Okay. And so in your time at IJM, you have done uh, a bunch of different things. I know that you, can, can you tell us kind of your progression of jobs at IJM? Absolutely. I mean, I, I make a joke of this. It's like, you know, people find out that I'm not good at one role and I get kicked out sooner than I can come in. <laughs> that couldn't be less true, but I, <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. <laughs> so I, I started as the director of legal uh, in less than six months. You know, Google came to IGM and said, hey, here is an opportunity to scale your work. So I was asked to exit the director of legal position and take up the director of Google Interventions role. And that role was exciting because I had the opportunity of creating a program that could scale up the work of IJM. So to give a perspective, we started in uh, we, the, the labor trafficking work. We were operating out of two cities in 100 kilometers radius. I had the opportunity to build a team that could take it from there to the rest of the country. And um, we were rescuing in hundreds. Uh, the team was able to scale the work to being able to rescue in thousands so yeah, uh, that was my responsibility. And then we saw that it was more uh, strategic for us to operate from another city, which is more central to how the work has been done in India. So moved to New Delhi, took my entire team with me. And then, um, yeah, I was uh, partnering with the IGM Delhi office and IGM Delhi office was born as an office that dealt with both advocacy and interventions. Yeah, from that position, I was uh, I had ended up heading the IJM Delhi operations for two years. Soon after, here I am in Canada. Sure, sure, Canada. I want to talk about the Canada move for a second. <laughs> but what did you learn about yourself as you progressed in leadership roles? What did you learn about yourself as a leader and a, as a person who, and I mean this with no call back to your story, but a person who is finding their voice in in the world of of IJM? Like what, what did you learn about yourself over that period of time? Yeah, it's two things actually. One, one most important shift that I experienced was a transformation that I had with myself. Honestly, if not for this experience with IJM, I would have been a very different person. Every single rescue that I stepped into, the truest rescue I experienced was mine, was mine first. And 10,000 rescues after, I'm still coming to the space of feeling, oh my goodness, 
that was me. That was for me. Um, so there is a tremendous transformation that I've experienced just by being part of this organization and just by doing this. The other thing about leadership that I've um, probably never spoken about, I, mean, I, I entered this organization knowing fully well that by no means am I ever going to be fully qualified for any of these responsibilities. So, so I wake up every morning just being excited that I have this opportunity. I seriously pinch myself that I have this opportunity. And it's no joke. I'm to this day, eternally grateful to that man who was willing to take a risk and hire me, Sajo Matthew. I keep thinking of him all the time. Like, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I mean, what a huge risk he took because you're looking at a resume that's spectacularly different from many other resumes that he would have received. Uh, but so one thing that I've been very clear about is every day I try to qualify for that job. So I'm coming in with that posture. I don't know how to get most things done. So I would figure it out when the first opportunity of scaling this work across the country was brought forward. I was like, I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to figure that out. And I did. And I also realized that years of what I had done in different spaces kind of prepared me. Um, so that's one thing for the in the events world or the work that I did with the university. I was setting up partnerships. I was setting up offices across the country. So a lot of these experiences, as much as it was weird to just stare at multiple different things on a piece of paper, kind of came together to be able to meeting that responsibility. So I felt like I was adequately set up, um, you know, by a higher power. So just when there is a need, that experience or that learning is gifted back to me by God. So I feel empowered as and when I need that empowering. And it doesn't come from within, it comes from above. Um, so that's one thing that I've learned as a leader. Never have I qualified, even today, I mean, I, I don't feel like, you know, I'm fully there, but I'm comfortable with that because that takes away the burden from me to being something that I can never be at this moment. And one example I have for that is, I told you paralysis kind of took away my memory and a whole lot of skills that I had including, but not limited to playing the violin. <laughs> uh, but one thing was, you know, in one particular rescue, um, this girl, she was getting beaten up because we were trying, there was a mob attack. We were a young girl and, uh, you know, we were trying to transport them from one place to another, but all hell broke loose. And this girl was beaten up and she fainted and she stopped breathing. And at that point, I'm thinking, goodness I have completely forgotten how to administer CPR. I had completely forgotten. I was trained in the um, you know, defense for several years. So I, this should be second nature to me, right? I mean, I should remember this. You were trained in the defense? Like, were you in the military? I was a national cadet corps. It's kind of a cadet training. Not your boy scouts and guides, but it's something extremely serious. So I've given maybe six years of my life to getting trained both in school and in college for that. Um, so sorry to have interrupted. I just That's a whole part of your story I never even got to, but that's so interesting. Okay, so in that, you learned CPR. You're in this moment where you're hoping, to, where you realize you need to administer CPR, but you don't have it with, you don't have that anymore. Exactly. What do, you, what do you do? Obviously, I'm looking at her and then, I don't know, it was almost like it was second nature. It came back to me and she came back. That's the thing, right? I mean, I my leadership has been that kind of a journey. I'm always up against things that I could never do, but at that exact point, I am provided what I need, uh, be it a bit of memory, be it 
a bit of miraculous intervention without which I wouldn't be able to move from one place to another. So yeah, I mean, that's one thing I think I've learned. Um, and, and I've also embraced um, the truth that you cannot be a leader unless you have followers. <laughs> and and a title by itself is not going to guarantee anything to you. And I can very proudly say that my team has gifted me the opportunity, at least you know, what I've been able to do um, in, for almost a decade on the field. Oh, they gifted me the opportunity to lead them. And without them, yeah, it would have just been a title. Yeah. I'm curious as I think through the early part of your story that you shared and your own surviving abuse and the fact that you have then gone back into situations that I would imagine could have felt or maybe did feel very triggering to your own abuse. I mean, seeing, I don't know a clever way to ask this. How do you do that? Like, how have you been able to do that? It has been spectacularly challenging, Eddie, um, because what happened in the initial couple of, I mean, initial years was, and this is true of me, I've, I've never really have spent enough time grieving the losses that I've had in my personal life. One gift was to be able to come to an organization like IGM, which has got you know, a whole lot of structure and approach um, spiritually to, you know, ground all employees. So for me, coming into that space was helpful. But what was really challenging was to look at other women and children getting exploited and having to be a custodian of their stories. You know, it is almost like reliving a rape multiple times. It's almost like reliving abuse of multiple times in my head. And every time I see, I mean, one particular stories of this woman who was in slavery for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. She had literally lost her voice. I mean, when I'm seeing her, she was wearing a sari quite, a, you know, not draped, you know, as perfectly as uh, Indian women would drape a sari. But I was asking her questions and I looked in her eyes. I, I unfortunately recognized that vacant look and that killed me, Eddie. I would have died a thousand deaths in my head at that point. And then what she went on to do later was because she couldn't speak, because she had literally lost her voice by because of the years of abuse by her master. And, and she just lost. I mean, because nobody was going to be, when you're a slave, nobody cares about what you have to say. You just listen, you know, you obey. She lost her voice. She forgot how to speak and she stripped her clothes off to show me how she was abused and where she was abused, it just, um, I really did struggle. It came back to me. I've had so many triggers, so many triggers. But over the years, I, I think the work that I've been able to do with IGM has, like I mentioned before, has been more or less restorative for me too. And I just, yeah. I am aware of the fact that there are people listening right now who are resonating with you in a few ways. And the first is, I know that there are people listening who have been victims of violence and abuse and are still very much, and I guess to your point from earlier, will always be in the midst in one way or another of reconciling that. I'm wondering if you can speak to them at all and offer anything to them as they kind of reel in what you've been saying. I always feel unqualified to speak to someone who has been through a similar experience because each of our experiences are so unique and so true to us. And 
I don't think there are enough words in the best dictionaries in the world that can capture how you'll be feeling. But what I do know is that there is always hope. What I do know that despite feeling broken and battered, trust me, I've been both, it is possible to rebuild into something much more fascinating. I don't know if you've um, heard of this Japanese pottery art. They basically take a broken bowl and piece it together with a gum or a glue made out of gold. Hmm. The more broken the bowl is, the more beautiful it becomes as the master pieces the pieces together. I forget the name of the art, but sometimes when I look back into my 30 plus years of living and those definite number of years where I have experienced violence and the years following that and think of every single broken piece of my um, heart, you know, making something beautiful. It may not be seen to us today. It may not be seen to those who are living outside of us, but it is possible. And it's far more beautiful than we could ever imagine it to get. And for those of you who have experienced violence, I see you and I hear you and your tears matter. It is so precious. Don't ever lose sight of that. Last thing, Anu. Yeah. There are also people listening, and there may be a Venn diagram of some of these people are the same people, but there are also people listening who are like, heck yeah, I'm going to go change the world now. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I've heard about a little 13-year-old Anu going and putting the system on trial, right? We've like heard about your story and your activism and just how much of that fire in you has been realized in action, right? Because it's not just been simply you caring, it's been you doing stuff throughout your entire life. Some hits, some misses, right? But overall, like you get in the game. I'm curious what you would offer people just as as encouragement if they are sitting here and they're like, yes, I care about whatever, fill in the blank issue, but they're having a hard time taking that first step to do something, to do anything. I'm curious if you could give a little of your fire to them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the first time I was faced with a shocking reality that led me to question uh, the basic assumptions that I didn't even know I had, you know, the, that moment when two worlds collided for me, the one I knew and the one I took for granted, the one I was confronted with that hellacious night um, when I was beaten up. So I would love to invite you to the world of contrast the world that you're familiar with and the world that is so different. And there is a piece that is missing there. There is a piece there where two worlds are colliding. You know, I sometimes think of the wonder of a tasty shrimp on my plate and the reality of the kind of labor practices that have been allowed to happen with almost absolute impunity, exploiting workers before that shrimp can become a delicacy on my plate. I stare at my phone The way I use consumer electronics is another baseline assumption that I have. If I need to find something out, I just pull my phone out and look, look it up. Those batteries, I mean, things that we consume have stories of rape and violence. So I can't, I mean, 
we are, we are noticeably, noticeably absent in this space, making it very hard for sh- to know for sure if the shrimp, electronics, clothing, building materials, flowers, rice, you name it, I mean, is tainted with modern slavery. But you want to know how not to have this collision of worlds. Right now, we might be happy to ignore the brutal reality of slavery. However, knowledge leads to action, like what Gary says. Nothing happens just because we are aware of modern slavery, but nothing will ever happen until we are. So the question is, would we be willing to end violence? And how would we do it? We cannot be complicit in this violence through inaction. The likelihood is that everyone listening to us right now has one point or other inadvertently supported supply chains tainted with slavery. And if you're being honest, it is not your fault. You didn't know the different steps. So I would say educate yourself. Find out what it is that you can do to understand more about issues. Any issue. I mean, I am strongly invested in uh, addressing human trafficking, but it could be any issue that you care deeply about. Build yourself with the awareness of that and then find a way where you could be meaningfully contributing to that. And there is no one route. Like I told you, when I was lying on that bed, not really having anyone else to have a conversation with. And the most intelligent person that I could have a conversation with was myself. I hope you laugh at that point. But there were a billion ideas, but it took one intentional step to walk towards addressing the injustice within me and outside of me injustice that I could have been responsible for by not responding, you know, being neutral is a crime, I would say. So show up. I wish somebody did when I was there, staring into the ceiling. Friends, Anu. For more on her work with IJM, If you are in Canada, go to IJM.ca, or if you're in the U.S., go to IJM.org. As always, we are exceedingly grateful that you would take time to not only listen to The New Activist, but rate and review the podcast wherever you are listening to this podcast, Spotify, Apple, wherever. Your five stars and encouraging words are hugely helpful, and it helps other people find the show. So thank you so much for doing that. Of course, the conversation that has started here today will continue on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of them are New Activist Is, and our website is newactivist.is. Many thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. All of his music, merch, coffee merch, etc. can be found at prophiphop.com. Also, Prop will be joining us on the podcast again in December. I'm excited for you to hear that conversation. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore. It was hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Anu George Kanjanathopal, as well as our colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>